Hello, greetings. Thanks for your interest in spiritual matters. My name is Ethan and I work with the Venice Church of Christ. We're disciples making disciples on the west side of Los Angeles. There's one thing that people associate with God or any concept of divinity. It's power. If we're searching for transcendence, something beyond ourselves, it's an implicit admission that, hey, there's something out there that is beyond our control and something that greater than we are. And we've been grasping at coming to grips in terms with this greater power and authority over us, whether we'd like to admit it or not. As Paul will attest in Romans chapter 1, 18 through 25, yeah, the power of the Creator is manifest in his creation. In Romans 13, Paul declares, There is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. It's the way that Paul says here that God has all power. He's the ultimate source of all authority. We could just make that the lesson. All right, God the Father has all authority, and we can go on with our lives. But there's much more to the authority of God than merely declaring it nakedly. And we do well to consider it in greater depth. Why does God the Father have all authority? On what grounds? How does his sovereignty enter the discussion? And how does God exercise his authority? Are very pertinent and relevant questions in terms of understanding the nature of the authority of God the Father. Because we need to be careful about how we understand what Paul says here in Romans 13 and verse 1. Because yeah, God has all authority. But that doesn't make God an authoritarian. It also doesn't mean that his authority is some set of abstract principles. Instead, Paul is talking as a Jewish person who has come to believe that God has fulfilled all the promises that he made to Israel through Jesus of Nazareth. And Israel continually insisted that Yahweh their God was the creator. This is something that we see over and over and over again. You can almost almost any psalm, any psalm you open to, odds are that there's going to be an affirmation in those psalms that Yahweh the God of Israel is their creator and that he displays chesed, which is often translated steadfast love, a loving kindness, covenant loyalty is the idea there. Uh, Psalm 33 is, is very famous in this light. The, the, the word of Yahweh, the heavens were made by the breath of his mouth, all their hosts. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear Yahweh. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. And so right there, why should everybody listen to, to God? Well, because he is the creator. And so Paul has absorbed this message very well. He argues that everybody should already have known about the existence of God. In Romans 1, as we pointed out earlier, he, the argument he's making there is that no one has an excuse for not knowing God because he has displayed his divine image, yes, but also his everlasting power in the creation and the things which have been made. And this is something that is difficult to argue with when we have massive natural events, the power of thunderstorms, the power of tornadoes, of earthquakes, of volcanoes, and even all those powers are infinitesimal compared to the power generated by the sun or that's seen in, in, in supernovae and the, the power of black holes. You know, everything you can think about, this is sheer 
greatness of it. All that testifies that there is absolutely greater powers out there than we humans can ever imagine, and that there is the greatest power beyond all of those. Now, if Yahweh is our creator also, it's not just that uh, he has power because he is the creator, but that we are under his control as his creation, which is exactly what is the point of the illustration in Jeremiah 18. In Jeremiah 18, uh, God calls the prophet Jeremiah to go and to see a potter, a person who works with clay. And he sees the, 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 the vessel that the potter is making out of clay. It spoils in the potter's hand. And so the potter reworks it into something else. because It's still wet, so it can be reformed. And so he reforms it into something else that he can use. And the word of Yahweh comes to Jeremiah. O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter has done, declares Yahweh. Behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. If at any time I declare concerning a nation or kingdom that I will pluck up and break it down, destroy it, and from if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster I intended to do to it. And if at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will build and plant it, and if it does evil in my sight, not listen to my voice, then I will relent of the good that I had intended to do to it. Now therefore say to the men of Judah and in heavens of Jerusalem, Thus says Yahweh, Behold, I am shaping disaster against you and devising a plan against you. Return everyone from his evil way and amend your ways and your deeds. And in the end, no matter how much love God shows, no matter how much love, loyalty he displays to the promises he's made before, at some point his mercy and his kindness end. And he has the authority to do that. He has the power. Israel should be in his hand as the clay is in the hand of the potter. And Paul picks this same up, illustration up in Romans 9, 19-21, uses as a way to address questioning God. Like, who would find fault with the will of God? What is Paul Shall the potter, the, the clay, ask the potter, why have you made me thus? And very powerfully, Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 29, 15 and 16, when considering the, the people of, of Israel at the time, declares, Ah, you who hide deep from the Yahweh, your counsel, whose deeds are in the dark, and who say, Who sees us? Who knows us? You turn things upside down. Shall the potter be regarded as the clay, that the thing made should say of its maker, He did not make me, or the thing formed say of him who formed it, He has no understanding. The you know the extraordinary situation that we find ourselves in in this situation, where the people think that somehow they can hide from God who they are, what they're doing, as if he will not mold it. And even beyond all these things, it's not just this, this idea a lot of people have that God set everything in motion and then uh, let it all keep spinning on its own. That in Hebrews 1.3, Ephesians 1.3, we get the idea that we continue to live and are sustained by the multitudes of gifts he gives us and that he continues to sustain the creation. That the reason the creation continues to exist is because he actively wills it to be. In fact, if we're honest with ourselves as we uh, meditate upon the universe in which we live, uh, that it's very hard to come to any other conclusion other than the same one that David did in Psalm 8. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is my man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? If you're ever struck at a starry night where you get to see all the stars, uh, you feel very small and very humbled at that moment. And you completely understand why David said that. And that's the point. That's why there's this constant emphasis that God is our creator, that God has 
made all these things. We are under his authority and his power. And we can see the care that God has for his creation in, in the way that he's made it that, it, it, that it's able to be sustained and nourished and, and, and that he has set up processes by which it can continue to grow and flourish. God understands the way the creation works, and that sounds obvious, that sounds intuitive. What's very interesting is that when man kind of gets out of his place, and man starts questioning, and, and starts questioning a little too much, we get a little out of our place, um, that glimpse that we have of how things work sometimes might get us to think we, we kind of know what's going on, and God then disabuses us of that notion. Job is the one who comes to mind. Job has this contention he has with God because of all the things that have happened to him. He wants an art, He wants to be able to make his case for God. Well, God appears to him in the whirlwind in Job 38 through 42 and verse 6 and asks him if he was there when all the stars were set in their place and, and when all of the creatures were made and if he knows, knows the ways of Leviathan and Behemoth and all these things. And Job is just struck literally with humility. That I have spoken empty words when I had no business speaking. I repent in dust and ashes. I have spoken of things too glorious for me. That, yeah, th this is all well beyond us. And we shouldn't always be in a posture of skepticism and doubt and questioning, uh, but instead in a posture of trust. Because God cares for us. Cares for his creation, and he, he could have destroyed us, he could have been done with us in an instant, but yet he has not. This also explains God's sovereignty over us. He's made us, he has a right to have the clay molded and fashioned according to his desire. We're going to talk more about that in a moment. Now, perhaps the, the, the stars in the sky is a, an apt illustration for what we're talking about, because if, if you're like me living in Los Angeles, you look up, you don't see very much. In those parts of the world anymore, you don't see very much because uh, we humans have made a lot of light pollution and you can't see the stars. Uh, you can't see the beauty of the natural world in a lot of places because of our development. And uh, that's kind of the metaphor, the post-modern, post-enlightenment, post-death of God world in which we live in, where it's easy to forget that it's a creation, where it's treated as if it's just this ball that's been spinning around the sun for billions of years or it just happened that everything worked out, that life has been able to develop on it. And everything's topsy-turvy, just like Isaiah described there in Isaiah 29, 15 through 16. And that's why we need to emphasize that, no, it's a creation, and that God's the creator. And as creator, he has uh, the final word on how it goes. Because if God's not the creator of heaven and earth, he's not really God. But if God is the creator of heaven and earth, everything that we see and everything that we are represents his creation, and we're subject to him. And we're subject to sovereignty, however he wills to exercise it. And therefore, who are we to answer back to him? Or presume him to be without understanding? Or that we know better than he does? So we've now brought up this idea of, of sovereignty. And when we talk about the word sovereignty, this, a lot of people's ears uh, pick up. And uh, it's kind of a, a term thrown around a lot in, in Christendom. Now, sovereignty involves absolute supremacy and rule. And since God is creator of heaven and earth, there was not a time in which he was not, then, yeah, he, and there will not be a time in which he is not. He is ultimately sovereign. He is indeed the sovereign. And there's no problem glorifying God as our sovereign. 
The question, though, ultimately comes down to what does his sovereignty look like? Because there have been a lot of people throughout the history of Christendom who have thought deeply on what has been presumed to be the necessary conditions of God's sovereignty. That, well, this is what sovereignty is, this is what sovereignty must look like. And those ideas are based on philosophical positions and logical constructs. And the most famous, or perhaps infamous, according to whoever's view about this kind of speculation, you hear a lot of from people who are of a reformed background, who identify with the Augustinian Calvinist uh, stream of thought about these type of issues. And Augustine was very much uh, committed to the Neoplatonic worldview that, that looked to uh, God as the absolute. And therefore, it's presumed that God's sovereignty demands that all things be completely subject to him and acting entirely within the domain of his will at, at its extreme and again not suggesting everybody who, who who takes a reform view of of sovereignty would agree with this but its most extreme form it, it's suggestion that if even if molecule was out of place it would question God's sovereignty that's the extreme viewpoint and a person of such a sort will look at a passage like Romans chapter 9 in Romans chapter 9, Paul is introducing a very powerful argument, a very important argument, talking about how God has the right to do what he wants to do, um, that God has made choices, and that the choices God made aren't necessarily the choices that you would necessarily expect, that demonstrate his sovereign will. I will have mercy upon whom I will have mercy, I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion, he will harden whom he will, he will have mercy on whom he will. And it's very easy to take all of this stuff and say, hey, look, all right, this is, um, this is great stuff. God's sovereignty demands everything he decrees is independent of any other influence from anyone or anything else. And he just makes the will decide it, it, it and that's the way it is. And on a logical and philosophical level, it's a very enticing view of God's sovereignty because it's very clean, it's very efficient, it's very clear-cut. Yet, in a very ironic way, to attempt to establish how God's sovereignty works through philosophical premises and logical deductions is in itself a violation of God's sovereignty. Because if God is entirely sovereign, it is God who determines how sovereignty is going to work. If a molecule is out of place, indeed, who am I to tell God his sovereignty has been challenged? And the thing is that the Augustinian Calvinist synthesis has always been a pains to explain itself in terms of how God has actually interacted with mankind, especially among his people Israel. In fact, the whole examples here in Romans 9 are about Israel. Oh, no, by the way, Romans 9, yes, Paul introduces all of those arguments, but he doesn't just leave them hanging out as if they're true, as if you can just draw whatever conclusion you want to. The whole point is in verses 22 and following is that he's calling not just from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. And he's bringing in Gentiles, and God is just to do that, and has not broken his promises by doing that. That you can't tell God you failed God because you haven't just saved Israel and condemned the nations. That's where Paul's taking these arguments. And it's a very important reminder that we just can't make whatever argument we want to out of whatever God has said, that we have to first understand what everything in an argument is leading to. And let's be very careful about that. Regardless, when it comes to God's sovereignty, we need to submit to God and understand how his sovereignty works in terms of how he has made himself known and how he has interacted with his people throughout time. God is the creator of heaven and earth and all of their hosts. He has made man in his image and his likeness in Genesis 1 and 2. 
But God is also love in 1 John 4, verse 8. Because of the way God has made man, he's made man just a little lower than the angels, according to Psalm 8 and verse 5. Now, love, by the definition that God himself gives in 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 8, does not insist on its own way. Therefore, it doesn't coerce, it doesn't force, it doesn't compel. And love, as manifested in Jesus, is a free will offering. We are overwhelmed by God's love by the very fact that we know God did not have to display that love. That it was God's free will choice to love. That love can only be love when the choice can exist to not love. And that is how God has made man with his own will. Man has been made with the ability to choose the good or to refuse it, to follow the ways of God or to turn from them, to be a slave of sin or to be a slave of righteousness, in Romans 6, 16-23. And God did this knowing mankind would sin and would require redemption that would come at a better cost. So it can be said in Ephesians 1 and verse 4 that God had chosen us in him before the beginning of the world, before the creation of the world uh, in Jesus, which requires a knowledge of the need for Jesus. And that God has had an eternal purpose that he's purposed in Jesus Christ. In Ephesians 3 and verse 11. Now, we're called upon to have faith in God's goodness. That he has made the best possible creation. That the terrible cost that has been paid. All of the suffering, all the pain, all the misery, all of the, the condemned souls. All the pain. Is more worthwhile than an alternative creation in which man's choice was circumscribed. And God's covenant relationship with Israel testifies to how God has chosen to exercise his sovereignty. As we, as we said, the two emphases we see in the Psalms is that God is our creator, and God has displayed his chesed, his loving kindness, his covenant loyalty. Psalm 136, and his chesed endures forever, is the chant after all these things, including that God has made all things. If a simple violation of his standard would break his sovereignty. Then God broke it almost, Israel, excuse me, broke it almost immediately with the golden calf in Exodus 32. And Yahweh was angry enough to get rid of Israel, but Moses interceded on their behalf, and God relented and continued to display covenant loyalty to Israel. Yes, Yahweh would judge all unfaithful Israelites, and they would suffer the due penalty for their transgression, but he persisted in, their, in his covenant loyalty. He pled with Israel to uphold the law, to remain faithful to him. You can see that in any of the prophets. Hosea is probably the, the, the most powerful embodiment where he had love a woman who was uh, uh, a prostitute, loved by others, to understand the experience that Yahweh was going through with Israel. And yet, Israel, Yahweh persisted in his love for Israel. We should consider again, Jeremiah 18, 1 through 12. We read it for a reason. What is God trying to do? You should be as the clay in the hand of the potter. Notice that when God said that, he didn't say, you are, therefore you must be molded this way. He said, if only you would allow yourself to be molded like this. That if a, a nation relent of their evil, the evil I purpose against them, I will relent. If a nation that I promise to do good does evil, then I will relent of the good I would do to them. So it, it shows that there's this, this, this interaction going on, this response to, to the human agency, that Yahweh allowed Israel to go its own way. Yes, there'd be judgment for it, but Yahweh did not compel, coerce, or force Israel into submission. And therefore, it's not for nothing that the primary image of God in the New Testament is the Father. Because Jesus continually spoke of God as his Father, Matthew 6, and the Lord's Prayer and other places, 
encourage his followers to do the same. The apostles will continue to go back to the imagery that Christians are part of the household of God. The part of the household of God that makes God their father in Ephesians 2:18 to 22, 1 Timothy 3:15, 1 Peter 2, and in verse 9. In light of that, the portrayal that Jesus gives of the Father in the parable of the prodigal son is scandalous. That you have this son who has said, "You are dead to me." has taken the inheritance, has ruined his inheritance, comes back in penitence. And the father sees him afar off, felt compassion, and ran to him and embraced him and kissed him. And when his oldest son was recalcitrant, he went out to him. To us, we don't think anything of it, but in an honor-shame culture, uh, and the father being the character of higher honor, it is shameful behavior for a more honorable person to run to the less honorable person, to come out to the less honorable person. That in this story, it's very deliberately crafted so as to show that God's extravagant love and care is reckless in human standards. This is the portrayal of God in the New Testament. Not the embittered old man looking to condemn. That, yes, has a lot of antecedents in that reformed tradition. But a loving father, wanting nothing but the best for his children. Having given his best for his children in his giving his son. Heartbroken over their unwillingness to follow in his ways and embrace what is good and what is right. In a father-child relationship, the child's questioning or even rebelliousness may prove an affront to the father's sovereignty, but it doesn't mean the father's sovereignty is broken. A father doesn't need to be an authoritarian character to be a father. And in fact, Paul advises against that kind of authoritarian posture in Ephesians 6.4, where he says to not uh, cause the children to be exasperated. Uh, if you want to exasperate your child, take an authoritarian posture. It's my way or the highway. That will lead to exasperation in very short order. Yes, God is sovereign. That means he has the right to define how his sovereignty works, and he's displayed how that sovereignty works in his relationship with Israel and with the people of God in Jesus. And so God provides the model for all healthy exercise of authority. We can't get around authority. A lot of people want to, but the difference is not to, to run away from authority, but to exercise authority in healthy ways. A display of love, to seek the best for those under his care, patient and long-suffering, but willing to exercise judgment when there is no remedy. God is no authoritarian. God is one in relational unity, as expressed in John 17, 20-23. And God welcomes people and wants to welcome people in a relational unity with him. And to this end, would like to have them become more like him so that they can share in relationship. When you break this down to its fundamental level, it makes a whole lot of sense that God has made us to share in relationship with him, to be more like him, to enjoy the good that he has for us. And that any resistance that we have to that invariably comes because we're not trusting him enough, because we are tempted to think that that which is actually harmful or not the best for us is better than the good that God would have for us. It's all based in that relationship. Something that when your parents knew you were doing things you sh- that were not good for you and were in pleading for you not to do them and had to have consequences for you because you were doing them, you, you didn't think that they, that they didn't love you. It's as you got older, you came to understand that that was how they demonstrated their love for you. That's how God is toward us. 
Does this make God squishy? Does this make God a slave of humanity? No, it means he loves humanity. He has suffered for humanity as son. But yes, in the end, he's going to have the glory that he deserves, that every knee will bow, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to his glory. In Philippians 2, 5 through 11. We, we need to be careful when people want to raise philosophical premises above and beyond what God has made known about himself. So God has made men. And how God, we have seen how God exercises sovereignty among his people. How does God use his authority? Well, Romans 13.1 remains primary. God has all authority and he empowers those who are placed in authority. And, as we see in Hebrews 13.17, he's going to demand accountability for how that authority was exercised. In Psalm 82, Ephesians 6 and verse 12 and other passages, we see that there are spiritual powers and principalities that God has established. They are to rule. Maybe some do as God intends, but others have rebelled against his purposes to some degree or another. That would explain how Satan has gained power over the kingdoms of the world so as to deceive man. In Matthew 4, 8 through 9, 2 Corinthians 4, 3 through 4, that the God of this world has blinded the people of this world to, to hinder them from seeing the light in Christ. It also explains why people give their power and influence to negative forces, to become enslaved to them. In Romans 1, Romans 6. Now, Romans 13, 2-7 explains the importance of submitting to government authorities as established by God to maintain justice. And it's been an age-old dispute. Does God install specific rulers? Now, the scriptures demonstrate that God has planned for specific rulers. In Isaiah 45, 1, he speaks of his purposes for Cyrus by name. And God accomplishes his purposes through the nations. And at times, God is giving people over to their desires. It is not likely that Tiglath-Pileser III of Assyria, Sennacherib of Assyria, or Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, or Cyrus of Persia, gave a lot of thought to how they were vessels of Yahweh to display his wrath or mercy. But they were just going to do what they were going to do. And that happened to be what God intended. We see this perfectly encapsulated in Acts 2 and verse 23, where Peter said that Jesus was betrayed and crucified by the deliberate predestined plan of God. He knew that Judas would betray Jesus. He knew that Herod would mock him and Pilate would have him executed. And these people were in the position and exercised their free will to do what God had intended. And yet none of them felt pressured to do so. They did it according to their own free will. And it happened and no one would necessarily have thought God's hand was in any of it. And yet there's Jeremiah 18. If a nation repents, God will relent concerning that disaster. The decree is not fixed. God's ultimate purpose is to save, not to condemn, not to have to bring disaster and calamity. God is amazing. God is able to accomplish his purposes, the actions and behaviors of men, even those who do not submit to him. Even, in fact, in 2 Corinthians 12, through the agency of Satan's temptations. And all through their free will decisions, without coiling, compelling them or coercing them. But, as the prophets attest, God's going to bring all of them under judgment. They'll be held responsible for how they will have ruled. And if they have given their power over the powers and principalities, the day will come for them to be all swept away by their powers and principalities. Thus it was with Assyria and Babylon, Persia, Macedon, Rome, and all who remain in authority. Now it's one thing to affirm that God has established authority and given authority to whom he wills. It's sheer folly to declare that you have understanding as to why the purposes behind God doing so in a specific situation and context without any specific revelation from him. It ends up just becoming an opportunity to project one's own desires, be it for uh, a blessing or be it for judgment. And wherever there is authority, God has granted it in the church, in the home, in a community organization, in the family, even in the individual. 
mean, God's very first command to humanity involved empowerment. Go subdue and have dominion over the earth in Genesis 1.28. Literally granting power to mankind. The word of God has authority because God has placed his authority in it to empower Christians to follow Jesus according to the commands and examples manifest in Scripture. 2 Timothy 3.14-17, Hebrews 4.12. Jesus has all authority from the Father. The Father's ability to give that authority also shows that he is of the greater uh, power. In Matthew 28.18, 1 Corinthians 15.24-28. We do all remember authority is a stewardship. It's a trust. We're going to be held accountable for how we exercise that authority, because all of us will stand before the judgment seat of God in Romans 14, 10 through 12. And so we go back to the demonstration of the proper use of authority that we've seen in God in Christ, in his relationship to Israel and his people. That's to be used to love, to care, to serve, to suffer, to uphold and maintain covenant loyalty. And in the end, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 24 through 28, all power and authority will return to God who is going to destroy all powers and principalities and God will be all in all. And may the day come quickly. Indeed, Maranatha. So we've seen the authority of God. That God has all authority as a creator, the architect of creation and its operator. That he maintains his sovereignty in covenant loyalty. That's the way he decided it. He's made that known to us. That's how we can know it. That all authority that exists comes from God and is to be used to further his purposes of relational unity between himself and his people and among his people. And that all who hold authority will be held accountable for it. So if God is sovereign and he has given all authority to Jesus, we must therefore serve him and not our own ways. Therefore may we trust in God in Christ and obtain the resurrection of life. hope that you've enjoyed our conversation. If you benefited by it, we encourage you to share it with friends, family, and others on social media. If you have any questions or comments, you'd like to discuss these things further, we'd love to talk more about it. If you'd like to have a prayer request, or you'd like to learn more about us, please uh, find us online at VanishingChrist.org. You can also find us on social media. If I can be of any service, you can reach out to me through my website, DeVerboVitae.com. That's www.D-E-V-E-R-B-O-V-I-T-A-E.com. I again, thank you. Have a great day.